As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Paul Sweeney. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Visit the Bloomberg Podcast channel on YouTube to see the show weekday mornings from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern from our global headquarters in New York City. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Look how out of the net right now. Yeah. Helping us here with the markets. What do you do at Dow 38,000 or UBS 1? Uh, you... By and large, you, you're prepared for a consolidation given the, the strength of the run, but uh, you prepare for higher, uh, really is, is our view. Our view coming into the year is that the, the surprise of the year, the thing that markets weren't expecting, would be that stocks had actually priced in a soft landing less than any other major asset class, and that stocks could rise, hit fresh record highs without getting much help from lower bond yields. So far, that's what happened. What we expect the next leg will be, you know, possibly right. after some consolidation, is a more broadening out of that rally, so it's not just, uh, you know, on the backs of the of the few so okay, far. we got industrials coming out now it's pretty shaky this morning we didn't need to go j and j did well but others uh, really pretty rocky morning do you subdivide in the day-to-day grind the tech growthy profitable companies cash flow companies like microsoft from everybody else or do you pull them together so our, our view for for a while now has been that given just the extent of earnings outperformance you're getting from uh, some of these names in tech, you, you just you can't you can't be short them. You really cannot be short some of these uh, cash generating machines. And you know we have you know overweight to, to technology and sector ETFs uh, where we have that uh, ability. So it, the short answer is uh, is yes. Still still enjoy those. Still separate them. However, you know our view is more towards the the broadening out. Want to have. Uh, Betting on a lot of different winners, whether that's in U.S. financials, whether that's in you know EM, ex China, whether that's in Japan, I really do think the story is the the soft landing narrative is a, is a boon to risk assets the world over. Hey, Luke, you know we had that great run to end the year uh, last year in, in kind of November, December. I don't recall earnings expanding that much during that period. Do we have a valuation risk here in the marketplace given that run we had? Uh, certainly at a valuation risk. You could also say that, you know, since the, the start of 2022, in theory, valuations have also uh, improved mildly. Right. So you can, you know, you can play that off one way or another. Valuation is clearly not the, the best market timing tool. What it is very good at is kind of delineating how close to the money you might want your stop to be at a very, very rich valuation. You might want to stop a, a little closer to the money at, uh, at something that you know, has a little more valuation support. You might be uh, a little more consistent to be able to, to bear out a, a weaker stretch. So you mentioned emerging markets here. I've heard Japan mentioned, not that Japan's an emerging market, but I've heard Japan mentioned more in the last 
six months that I have in the last 20 years. What's going on in Japan? I, I, there's a lot of different elements here I think you can tie together. I think first, the, there's been a long story of trying to get corporate Japan to improve its shareholder return programs. That actually became serious. You actually really start to see more concrete steps around that, you know, let's call it February, March of last year, and really start to re- see that ramp up and the market uh, glom on to that. The second is Japan is probably the best levered play to nominal growth that you that you have out there really? it's predominantly right. export oriented the the yep. earnings outlook and it's yeah. also benefited from at the same time having the the yen as weak right. as it is the third element sorry i have to but the third element <laughs> is uh is just uh, definitely the fact that from an asian perspective if it's china or japan i think that rotational right. yep. flow has been a very important story the heart of the yeah. matter is this debate over cash we're deep into January, and everybody knows there's six, eight trillion out there. I bring it up literally in every conversation because all of our listeners and viewers are looking at cash. Where's it going to go? Is there a UBS formula that says X percent of it goes back to deposits? I would say the just speaking generally <clears throat> into longer duration assets. So this is this is something that even at the start of last right. year, because the I, th- I would say the macro mood was a lot lower going to the start of last year. A uh, big thing I was pounding the table on was reinvestment risk, reinvestment risk. You're not going to be able to get this yield on cash forever. Well, now that's actually more teed up. Uh, I think people are a lot more aware of what's what's coming down the pipe here. So it's it's effectively. We are going to see some flows into uh, whether it's longer duration or whether it's into the equity market. We would accept, expect some more support on a flow basis as it becomes more apparent that cuts and the yield on cash is going down for good news reasons, uh, a soft landing, falling inflation, rather than bad news reasons, a uh, stumbling, a deteriorating economy. All right. So Tom's been all over this Magnificent Seven. He's just been printing it in 2023. How about for the rest of us? I mean, I missed that trade, no surprise. Uh, My New Jersey municipals have done just fine, thank you. But where do I go now? I mean, do I chase those Magnificent Seven here? I miss. I must admit it when Tom left the uh, triple lever doll cash fund <laughs> yes. uh, in in favor of greener pastures. A stealth, but, uh, stealth move in the market. Yeah, no, our, our our view is things like U.S. mid caps, U.S. financials, EMX yeah. China. Those are some of the areas where you are seeing uh, some some more <clears throat> relative earnings support valuations a heck of a lot supportive. So if you if you're looking at things right. that have been relative laggards, have a lot of catch up potential. If the the risk on mood stays going, those are probably some of the spaces where we expect to see obligatory Luke Kawa talk now. We got to go to hockey. Yep. Uh, here, there's a great video out there, folks, of a really magnificent moment, and I lived it in that uh, Michigan, when I played, was number one in the nation. Uh, without question, Red Berenson uh, was was the force there, and I had the privilege of talking to him as he said, "Tom, you're not good enough. You're not going to escape from Michigan." Somebody else was, and it's one of the most famous goals in NCAA history. Your father and I went back and forth, Lukawa, the other day on one of the greatest goals the NCAA, he went around Jim Craig and put the orb in the net. And it was, they lost to Wisconsin in the finals, but so what? That's Wisconsin, they're a bunch of Canadians. Uh, but but um, what a joy growing up with, with Ben Cowell. What was that like? I mean, did, was he, did he have you in the backyard doing sprints? Uh, not, not sprints, but man, they're still next to his 
His dad just turned 100 this year. Wow. They're still an outdoor yard right in the park beside their place where he remembers skating as yeah. early as Halloween some years. And, you know, now I think yeah. it's well into the new year before that thing freezes over. So make that <laughs> what you will. But, yeah, no, what a, what a great guy. What a great coach. And it's been uh, you know, great getting to banter with him on right. hockey over the years as it is with you as well. Okay. Well, thanks so much. Luke Kawa with us. And good morning to Ben Kawa and Mr. Kawa Sr. 100 years old? 100 years. Very wow. cool. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Carl Riccadonna is at BMP Paribas, and he knows that you read Blinder and Balmall at uh, 14th edition at Princeton because that is gospel. And if you go to chapter 18, they talk about factors of production and other bow tie stuff involving productivity. Carl, Productivity right now is a mystery. How does our mystery of productivity, marginal productivity theory, how does that fold into what I believe is a fully employed America? Well, we uh, good morning, uh, all, first of all. And uh, as we think about the productivity numbers, it's really uh, kind of a snow globe uh, at the moment post-pandemic like because we've had wild swings in, in both directions. Uh, and so this is really a residual measure of, uh, of economic performance. And I, I think we won't understand the productivity trend uh, until we get to more steady state performance right. in the economy, which I'm optimistic that will be the case uh, in 2024. Uh, but uh, typically, as you have uh, kind of labor scarcity episodes and high wage inflation, uh, that creates the type of capital investment which does lead to higher productivity numbers. That being said, as we look at uh, forward indicators of capital spending and whatnot, they don't look great. CapEx intentions uh, look pretty right. poor for the economy at the moment. Uh, so there really is kind of a two-way uh, right. uh, narrative or two-way discussion that we'll have to filter through over the course of this year. I love, love, love the Riccadonna snow globe uh, analog. <laughs> we, will, we will steal that and use that. Carl, if that is the case, we're, we're a fully employed America, but Paul Sweeney and I are getting emails by the hour saying, you guys are nuts. How can we have a 4%, sub 4% unemployment rate 
and we're getting the emails we're getting. How does that happen? Well, what's interesting, if we look at uh, the last jobs report, uh, there was some uh, peculiar behavior in labor force participation. Uh, had we not seen those moves, the unemployment rate would indeed be moving above 4%. So there's, uh, there's definitely uh, you know, a, a, a down vector on the labor market at the moment. It's been pretty steadily decelerating for the last 24 months, really. Uh, and so this may be creating some perceptions of economic weakness, but uh, tying into today's events in New Hampshire and as we think about the presidential cycle, uh, there's, uh, there's weak economic sentiment uh, from the public, but uh, I think that over the course of this year, as it becomes more apparent that inflation has moderated and it becomes more apparent that the labor market is still on a relatively healthy footing, uh, this economic messaging, I think, is going to play favorably uh, into uh, incumbent politicians. Uh, most, uh, you know, most importantly, the top of the ticket, uh, the presidential races are very sensitive to economic conditions. Ronald Reagan said it in 1980, asking voters, are you better off than four years ago? Uh, and Bill Clinton uh, also honed in on that message in 92. Too, uh, with his unofficial campaign slogan of uh, it's the economy stupid uh, exactly. and I think uh, it's the economy is going to resonate uh, uh, with voters uh, and, and maybe we saw kernels of that uh, in the last last uh, Michigan sentiment survey uh, as well hey Carl what are you and uh, the good people BNP Paribas what are you what's your economic call here for 2024 are you in the uh, soft landing camp where are you guys uh, it's some version of soft landing, so maybe we'll say soft-ish landing, because when you have the uh, fastest and most aggressive Fed tightening campaign in four decades, uh, just to think that comes in for a perfect landing, I think is maybe uh, a, a little bit too optimistic. So we are cognizant that there will be uh, some tensions here between still you know, very restrictive monetary policy, rising real rates in the economy, uh, at the same time that the labor market and income trends are decelerating. So uh, I think it will be a, a bumpier version of uh, soft landing that plays out, but I think it will still fall short of what would be called a recession uh, by the Business Cycle Dating Committee. So uh, all in all, it looks to be a, a decent year ahead. Hey, Carl, the, we just saw some earnings from some of the industrial uh, companies, whether it's General Electric or 3M, a little bit of, of softness there. And we've seen softness in the manufacturing economy for many months now. But boy, the consumer's hanging in there. What's, what's your call on the consumer here uh, for the year? So the consumer's hanging in there, and uh, just to take one step back, uh, looking at those uh, big industrials, right, as, you, as, a, as a macroeconomist puts on his equity strategist hat, <laughs> right, we, we focus on the nominal GDP trend, uh, and rather than margins, we look at uh, inflation, right, they're, they're measuring the same thing, if, essentially. Uh, and when we think about the 2024 outlook, it will be a year where nominal GDP is slower, uh, than what we've seen in the recent years. Doesn't mean it's contracting, but it's definitely decelerating. Uh, and also, as inflation moderates, that's going to put pressure on uh, corporate margins. So if you have slowing top-line growth and margin compression, that's a challenging year, uh, you know, or a challenging outlook uh, for, uh, for equities. Right. Now, the other side of that is that uh, consumers are relatively healthy. We still have a, a tight labor market. We still have uh, persistent wage pressures. So uh, one right. way to think of that is it delays the Fed's uh, rate cut plans. 
but uh, you know, wage pressures are still running at effectively 4%. 4.6% is measured by the Employment Cost Index. Uh, right. And this is uh, you know, bad news for the Fed that wants to get quickly back to uh, 2% inflation, uh, but it's good news right. for the resilience of consumer activity. You know, Carl, I, I use a 10-year inflation-adjusted yield. The real yield, folks, is, is sort of my... You know, it's like the Gilbert Chem set that Carl Riccadani <laughs> had years ago in the basement. And, and I look, Carl, it, the 10-year real yield, 1.80 to break out above 1.86 is new territory. Are you suggesting a sustained higher real yield is we're at 1.83 right now? I think if we have a sustained higher real yield, that is going to put downward pressure on economic activity. And I like to think of it in Fed funds terms. So if we take the you know right. five and a half Fed funds rate, uh, we look what's happening in core inflation, pick your poison, whether you want to look at inflation expectations, core CPI, core PC deflator, which we'll get another look at uh, this Friday. Uh, in that type of measure, it's telling you that the policy rate is uh, is moving higher uh, and maybe too high for kind of a soft landing uh, type of uh, uh, play right. out for the year. And so I think that means that there has to be a course correction. I don't think at the March meeting, uh, but I think by the time the second quarter rolls around, we will have more confidence uh, that the economy is moderating, the labor market is coming into better balance, inflation pressures have moved lower, so they still need to continue pushing uh, on inflation with, with uh, you know, real rates uh, right. well above our star, so a 2% real rate, uh, but there will be a time for right. a recalibration around the middle of this year. Well, we're our start freed on Tuesday, Carl, so we're cutting it <laughs> short here. Thank you so much. Carl Riccadonna is with BMP Paradise. Right now, she did the Gabelli track. That's what we call it here. If really? you go to BC and then Fordham, yep, we yep. call that the Mario Gabelli <laughs> That's track. That's a good track. And this is, this is a really important conversation, folks, because she came off the derivatives desk at Deutsche Bank and at SockGen, which is owned European derivatives. SockGen invented the math, trading, gaining, and losing here on equity derivatives. Sylvia Jablonski joins us with Defiance this morning. Sylvia, let me just start out with Defiance ETFs. I love your cruise ETF, you know. <laughs> it, it's, it's been great. It's triple leverage all cruise ETF. Yep, love it. But why did you guys choose not to do a Bitcoin ETF? Let's go right there. Good, good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, I think it's in ETFs. A lot of times, it's a it's a first movers market, and and there were a whole lot of first movers. Yeah. Um, um, here, you know, so once you start hearing that BlackRock's in the game, you know, you had right. the grayscale people converting GBTC. It's just a you know, you have to make sound business decisions and know where you're going to win. But we probably would have, to be honest, if we were had a chance of being first. We um, just just wasn't in the cards for us. <laughs> we, we, we understand price volatility like in cruises during the pandemic. I'm sure your ETF will sport there on a day to day basis. What do you make of price volatility of Bitdog? Forty nine thousand when I stepped into it. Thank you, folks. That worked out. <laughs> yeah. And we're enjoying sub 40,000 this morning. Thirty eight thousand nine sixty one. What will be the ramifications of that price volatility for the billions in Bitdog ETFs? <laughs> I like the BitDog ETFs. I think that a whole lot of people are going to buy the BitDog ETFs pretty soon um, when it when it falls to that, you know, thirty seven thousand, maybe even thirty six thousand level before it starts to rally up. I think this is a, kind of a classic sell the news thing. And you know, the thing with these Bitcoin ETFs and Bitcoin in general, you have a lot of people that actually believe in the thesis of the product and that you know it, it will be 
digital gold and that there's a place for it in a portfolio. And if you see these institutions actually allocating that one to two percent, just give it, a, you know, give it a go and, and invest on that thesis. Plus the people who just invest because they think a whole lot of people are going to buy it and the price is going to go up, but have no conviction on it. You know, you, you can see that Bitcoin is going to get some tailwind here um, in the future because of these ETFs. If you look at the ETF filings, there are so many of them out there now for covered call strategies, for put right strategies and things like this. So, you know, just the sheer amount of volume of stuff that comes in and the amount of people that are willing to yeah. give it a try and buy it, I think will move the price. It's inside baseball. Jablonski's all jargon. I mean, there. but can you imagine a covered right on <laughs> oh BitDogs? I can't imagine framing out a covered right to bring in premium on Bitcoin. I just can't go there. Yeah, but I know a lot of people are. And so you know, believe that- it or not, because we looked at this, but you'd be surprised. The actual, you know, the actual kind of juice in this is less than, there we go. than it now is we're on like a VIX product. It's really surprising. It's kind of surprisingly boring, to be honest. I don't know how it'll change right. over time, and, and, but there's not as much juice in there as you'd think. And what's great about this is the way you learn about juice, you don't learn that like in CFA 101. No. You learn it in Marianne's on Tom Ave in Boston, exactly. and you're going to Boston College. So, right. Sylvia, I mean, I've just been blown away really over the last 10, 15 years in the growth of the ETF business. It's just been extraordinary. And the more you learn about it, the more sense it makes. And we have some good folks here at Bloomberg that are really following the ETF business. Uh, where do we go next? What's the what's the the next area of growth for ETFs? Because the fund flows there are just extraordinary. Yeah, the fund flows are back. I think, you know, post 2022, like everything else, ETFs have seen a recovery. You've seen, you know, the majority of inflows this year. And and I think a lot of the, the kind of, you know, kitschy meme types of products have now been closed and, and kind of filtered out. And now what you have out there are the classic ETF products. You have some good thematics that invest in things like AI and, you know, super computing, things like that. We do a lot of that. But the next, you know, the next kind of hurrah for ETF seems to be using options to do different things. So whether it's to generate income, you know, there's been a huge growth in covered call strategies. There's been a huge growth in um, put right strategies to generate income. You've seen a lot of flows there. Uh, and you've also seen, you know, different issuers doing creative things with leverage. So you're starting to see four beta, pro, you know, four X daily yep rebalanced products, single stock products. And I think that there's appetite there. I mean, billions of dollars have flown into it. So it's, it's you know, hard to say there isn't. And I think using op- the option structure to generate income will be a big theme this year. You know, Sylvia, I, you know, when I first started learning, and I think a lot, a lot of people learning about ETFs, it was the whole passive thing, the S&P 500 type of thing. And I got that jet would allow you to operate a really low cost uh, structure type of wrapper here. But then you guys introduced, you guys being the ETF industry, introduced active ETFs, and that's kind of where you lost me here. So is the cost yeah. advantage to an active e- ETF that much better than you know walking down the street and getting a Fidelity mutual fund? Well, it depends on the fund, right? I mean, mutual funds were sort of historically, classically expensive. Some of them have cut their fees because of what ETFs have done. And it depends on the performance, right? I think on a lot of these active ETFs, if, if you're getting you know, 20, 40, 60% returns, you don't really care that you're paying 1%, which is arguably on, on the high side for ETFs, right? So it's all about what the ETF actually delivers. Yeah. Um, and then ETFs are just, you know, they're, they're just better. I mean, they are, they are a better mousetrap. You can buy and sell them all day long. 
you know, you can arbitrage right. them, you can go to a market maker, you know, get, get filled that nav. I mean, they're just right. a better product. Sylvia, a question off the mark, and this goes to Sockgen. I spent a lot of time with Sockgen animals in London. There was a Cuban, <laughs> there was a Cuban cigar bar on Wardour Street, oh. which was basically the cafeteria yep. for Sockgen. This is a few. This is before Sylvia's time. She's too young to remember this. But you know, at Sockgen, you guys are pros at trying to figure out where the shadows are in leverage right now. Away from defiance yeah. and your great work there, what do you worry about within the shadows of the derivative space right now? The leveraging up to notional. What what's the shadow out there that concerns you? You know, I I think if the in terms of the structure of those products, you know, I think that they've become kind of more stable and safe. I was actually at SockGen, you know, shortly around the time that um, you had the Lehman crash and things like that. I was working on the swaps desk when all of that was going on. So that was, you know, that was eye opening, right? And people learned that you kind of have to have a third party holding the overnight collateral. Um, you have to have, you know, a, a lot of kind of like good Monte Carlo simulation before you take certain things right. on and swap and things like this. So I think that the risk standards are a lot higher. I think, you know, having having actual cash and, and physical funds at a third party matters. I worry more about the client. You know, if you get a big market move and you have a Forex product, I mean, you can wipe out the fund in a day, right? But yeah, I um, all of it is slow. Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, you know, so... Um, yeah. I haven't actually seen that. I spent a lot of time at Direction, the 3X, you know, place too. And even during right. COVID, when we had these massive moves, the company itself took the leverage point from three to two to kind of protect the <laughs> protect people from themselves, really. Right. Um, and and you know, the volatility okay. and things like that. And so you hope companies right. do that. But okay. yeah, that's the risk. Sylvia, this moves, has been huge, hugely, hugely valuable. She's the Defiance ETF. Sylvia Jablonski with us. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Joining us now, tech wizard who figured out YouTube decades ago, Gene uh, Munster joins us, co-founder of Deepwater Asset Management. Gene, I've got like eight ways to go. Let's start at 60,000 feet. I'm in the theme that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The Magnificent Seven had a magnificent 2023 I just don't buy the idea it ends. Will it continue into this year and next? 
For the year, I think it absolutely will. And what we're seeing is a gravitational pull when it comes to the AI opportunity with the Magnificent Seven, and also what I would call the ordained 15, which are the private <laughs> late stage uh, AI companies. And uh, I think that's where right. all the traction is gonna happen. I would say there's a Mag 7 on the public side, there's also gonna be this uh, Magnificent Seven or 10 on the private side. But right. uh, yes, Tom, I think it's gonna continue. I would caution and uh, f continue for the year, I would caution this earnings period is going to be a lot of intensity, a lot of focus from investors related to commentary about AI contribution in 2024. Mm -hmm. I think that is the A topic that's going to orbit around the MAG-7 right. for this earnings period. And I suspect that the commentary is going to be relatively muted or the commentary right. will be we expect some contribution. The good news, so I think that that could cause a near-term yeah. pause in some of these stocks. I think the good news for a lot of these, uh, for the companies, if you look at the estimates for the December quarter for the growth rates and then for the full year of 2024, December 23 and 2024, uh, analysts aren't really expecting much contribution from AI. I think uh, psychologically, it's a bigger topic than right. it is relative to the numbers. But I just, I think that these companies are gonna to continue to do well. I do, uh, per, I do anticipate this earnings period to be mixed in terms of the stock reactions. Early Gene Munster, there's, there's Munster's so large. There's early Gene <laughs> Munster, middle Gene Munster, and later Gene Munster. Early Gene Munster was 14 pages from Piper Jaffrey, which came in at 4 p.m. and you had to read it by dinner, or you, you couldn't focus. You and in the back of it, he always had these brilliant, some of the parts analysis Gene Munster, for the Magnificent Seven, for Apple and Microsoft in particular, what's the sum of the parts look like right now? Well, the sum of the parts, it's ultimately, when you think about Apple, it's about services. It's about, um, from you put all this together, I think it's better than a $3 trillion company. I think the iPhone business uh, today, it's just over half of their, their total revenue. I think in aggregate, that should be uh, should trade at essentially a 35 multiple. I think that multiple wow. is justified given, uh, even though it doesn't grow much, I think it's justified because these devices have become substance to our life. We can't live without these, uh, basically half the people in the US can't live without these devices. And so I think that uh, you put this together, I think this is a three plus trillion dollar company. I think that there's a lot of uncertainty related to Apple at this time. I haven't, I haven't recalled a time in Apple's history when there's been as much concern uh, going into this uh, to a quarter, there's concern about the iPhone demand. There's concern about some of the delays that they've had or taking some of that watch half off the table because of the uh, blood oxygen monitoring. And there's also some concerns related to how their app store policies are changing, specifically related to steering and the impact on the app store revenue. But I think that um, I think that you know when you when you course these out, I think that uh, this is a three plus trillion dollar company. And um, when it comes to Microsoft. Uh, from a sum of the parts, there's two basic parts to it. There's their cloud business. Uh, that business say they have 22% market share. Uh, Microsoft in total is a $220 billion revenue company. It's going to grow about 15% this year. But as you think about an aggregate, their cloud business is is worth, even though it's uh, called 15% of total revenue, given the profitability, it's 30 plus percent of the valuation. The biggest lever when it comes to Microsoft over the next year in terms of the sum of the parts is related to what's going on with the upside and uptake with Microsoft, uh, their, their co-pilot 
and office that contribution. So they, of course, have raised the price, call it going from 15 to $30 a month. And that started back in November. There's about 350 million office, wow. uh, office users. Um, so the office business today is about a $65 billion business of that 220 uh, total in revenue. But you could build a case if ten, if a third of those people pay up for Copilot, which I think is conservative, you know that that can increase revenue yep. by ten percent, and that's probably the biggest sum of the parts lever when it comes to Microsoft is what the up, uptake is going to be. They haven't broken out what those numbers have been. Uh, as I mentioned, it started in November. All they've said is that they uh, they've had a, a positive reception from their uh, early corporate beta testers with this co-pilot. And I suspect this is going to be a hit product. This is going to help you compose emails, help you do PowerPoints. Yeah, do my taxes. I think that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, do taxes potentially. Uh, so well, I you think thought that, that was funny, Lisa. Yeah. You want to jump in here? What would you use Copilot for, Lisa Mateo? Let's see. Um, I know what my kids would use it for. <laughs> Book yeah, reports. It's a threat. It would help with the homework. Book reports. Yeah. Of course, we're talking to Gene Munster, managing partner and co-founder of Deepwater Asset Management. Hey, Gene, I think, you know, that in, in 2023, not just in tech, but for the whole stock market, AI was such a driver uh, of positive sentiment. And I think what a lot of investors who are pulling away and just saying, all right, let me just take a look at this AI story. And the question I hear most often is, how much of this spending across tech over the next several years uh, for AI will be actually incremental to what was already kind of a base case for uh, tech spending in general? Do you have an idea how that might look? So uh, yes, the answer is that it's it's a substantial amount in the twenty to twenty to thirty percent range. Wow. Meta last week had some commentary about what Facebook. their spend is going to be on GPUs, and if you look at what their baseline spend was before they they announced that, it's a thirty percent increase in spend. Is these you know there was this talk about pause in AI last summer. There was this letter that went around that a bunch of people, including ironically Elon Musk, signed. And uh, there's been no pause is that uh, this has been these companies continue to aggressively go after this. And I think that that is uh, one of the I think uh, one of the clearest signs how much investment is going on from these companies that this AI that the AI substance is ultimately going to exceed the hype. It may take uh, several years to get there. But uh, yes, there, the infrastructure spend is remarkable, uh, especially with the Magnificent Seven and of course, that infrastructure spend helps a lot of companies, many companies, potentially most companies, to enable AI in their products in the years to come. Hey, Gene, one of the things that I think some investors are, are waiting for when they think about AI is that defining IPO, like maybe Google was a defining IPO for the search business. Facebook was the defining IPO for uh, the social media business. And you mentioned some private companies. Do you see something like that in the next year or two, a, a company or a group of companies that say, wow, AI has really arrived as a standalone kind of investment opportunity? Absolutely. I think that's going to be the next leading class. I think it's probably two to three years away. But I think that that, uh, you know, these companies that are AI first companies, when we look at the Magnificent Seven, I talked about the upside related yep. to Copilot and Microsoft and saying that that could add 10% to their revenue. Well, these companies that are AI peer uh, plays, they're growing at 300% off uh, small bases, but approaching more than a billion in revenue, some of them. And I think that these AI peer plays, uh, there will be this moment. 
ultimately, when you put it together at Deepwater, right. we think we are going to enter an AI bubble in the next three to five years. We don't think we're anything close to it right now. We put right. this in, uh, and and uh, we put we think we're in like 1995, and we still have five more years to go before this really escalates. But I think that's going to be one of those moments right. where. Uh, it really um, gets some excitement in the market once we get some of these IPOs. Right. And who are they? Um, you know, it could be OpenAI, uh, Databricks is a is one, Hugging Face. Um, uh, <laughs> right. Those are Midjourney. Those are kind of the four uh, most right. obvious ones that would be public. That's a secret world of Gene Muster yep. there. Gene, the fact of the matter is, Mr. Nadella is uh, firing on all cylinders. You mentioned Copilot and all the applications that we're seeing of actual money coming in, $20 a person, $10, $30 a person. And I'm enjoying a 38 multiple and maybe my Munster guesstimate forward squeezes down to a 35 multiple. What do you do with a tech stock when all the good news is in, like in Microsoft right now? Well, if, if your view is that all the good news is in, you probably sell it. And I, I think in the case of, uh, you know, that, you know, owning, that is a great way to build wealth is to own have people agree with you later. And if, and if you, uh, there's generally a consensus that the good times are going to continue for these large companies. And so I think that if you have a view that maybe this is as good as it gets, that this is absolutely the time to sell because you'll get multiple compression. Uh, I, of course, don't believe uh, that that's the, the case. And I just want to put one, um, put some, a little bit of perspective on that in terms of, you know, how on earth I, I, uh, I really strive to be level-headed when it comes to these tech trends and making sure that I'm not getting carried away in, yeah. in some of the overall hype on it. And when I think of uh, AI, I'm, I'm in the camp that electricity is 100, uh, the mobile phones are 25 in terms of uh, scale of importance, the internet's a 50, and I think AI is probably a 90. I think this is ultimately- really that big? Uh, wow. And wow. Uh, if, if, if in fact uh, that ends up playing out, then uh, we really haven't seen, I'll give you another example is that um, we were uh, buying Meta over the last couple of years, and it's done well recently. And we debated about internally about should we is this a stock that we should sell? It's had a good run. Let's take take our money and go other places. But then we just thought more about the impact that AI is going to have in their business, and it just felt like uh, this is one to continue to hold. And so that's what we're doing. Single most important insight of the week. You just heard it from Gene Munster with War Wounds of Selling Too Soon, <laughs> and he said he has a winner in Facebook guess what? He and his team said, extend that. And that, right. Paul, yep. you and I know, how much money have I left on the table? <laughs> I'm in triple leveraged all cash. I'm leveraged up with a 15% gross. And I go, now lighten up. And I'm <laughs> wrong every time. Hey, Gene, one of the, uh, I'm just trying to think of some headwinds here for the tech space. I mean, do I have to worry about Washington, D.C. here in terms of regulations more just broadly defined on tech and maybe even specific for AI? How are you guys framing that risk out? When it comes to AI, there's going to be more regulation. Of course, uh, we've got that letter that I mentioned. Tim Cook has been, uh, uh, he hasn't said anything in the, his, his uh, prepared commentary on their earnings calls in 2023 related to AI. Uh, he has made comments more recently outside of the earnings calls and said that regulation is important. He's mentioned that also in their Q&A. 
I think when you have a company like Apple uh, inviting uh, regulation in, I think it's probably something that is going to play out. As far as the impact on the business and the uh, you know the how profound this growth can be, I don't think it's going to have an impact on that. I think that a lot of the regulation is going to come around uh, things like uh, watermarking related to images to try to help uh, prevent deep fakes and the use of AI for um, you know, whether it's for, for malice behavior, but I don't think that, uh, I think that the, this aggressive investment cycle is ultimately going to continue. The broader topic of beyond AI and regulation in Washington is uh, something that has orbited uh, obviously for years. And we have at the end of this month, uh, Meta and Snapchat and uh, TikTok is, are, they're all going to be in on Capitol Hill and talk about some, some of the latest issues related to some of the targeting that's going on on those platforms. Uh, the, the simple answer is that regulation uh, sounds bad, and really the substance of it hasn't played out. And right. uh, it's it's a little bit hard for me to imagine right. why now is the time when this would have start to have an impact. Really generous time with us today. Gene Munster, thank you so much. Deepwater Asset Management there on your view of tech. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, bringing you the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Visit the Bloomberg Podcast channel on YouTube to see the show weekday mornings from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern from our global headquarters in New York City. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.